Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. I just wanted to announce that onxmaps.com has stepped up to be a sponsor of this podcast, and I would appreciate if you guys would support all of the sponsors. But if you haven't gotten a Onyx Maps uh, membership yet, now is your time, now is your chance to do so. You get a 20% discount if you use the JSCOT18 promo code, and that's good for purchases of a premium, which is a one state, or an elite membership, which is all 50 states. And I've been using Onyx Maps uh, for a, li- a couple of years now, and um, it's an incredible app. It's probably the best hunting app out there, definitely the best uh, mapping app. And some of the features that I like is you can distinguish between public and private lands. Uh, It shows the owner of the land. It shows the exact dimensions of the property, uh, whether it be public, private, or what have you. Uh, Also, the ability to have the offline maps. So in other words, if you're in an area where there is no cell service, uh, you just save the maps that you would like. uh, And it performs just like you had regular service, which... I really like those offline map features. You can also uh, mark waypoints and use GPS tools. It's just like having a GPS, but it's right on your phone. Uh, And then the tracking of your hunts, they have a breadcrumb feature where you can either follow the path of your vehicle, follow the path of you on foot. Um, You can mark waypoints. It's just an awesome tool. You can switch between aerial. You can switch between topo. You can do a hybrid mode. Um, But go to onxmaps.com. Use the jscott18 promo code and you're going to get a 20% discount. Let's get right to this episode with Russ Jacoby. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have my friend Russ Jacoby of Mossback, Arizona. Russ, how you doing? Excellent, Jay. Good to be with you today. Yeah, for sure. Um, you guys been getting some of this moisture up in the Flagstaff area? We have been. That's good. Um, why don't we catch up on, before we dive into some of the buffalo and the park stuff, uh, catch up on some of the past fall hunts that you've already been on, uh, maybe highlight some of the personal hunts or anything that you've been doing, and then uh, as well as anything that Mossback Arizona's been doing. Sure. Um, I guess I would describe this year in Arizona as a little bit crazy. I don't think I've seen as dry a conditions and as wet a conditions in the same calendar year ever in my entire life. Um, but we've had some amazing hunts. Um, for the buffalo stuff, we just cranked this year on the spring hunt. It was really dry, and I think that helped us some, and we killed a lot of really big bulls. And then as it moved into the rainy season, um, we did okay on the cows, but certainly rain does impact those buffalo hunts. How so? Um, well, when you get rain, um, the bison don't move around as much. They don't leave the park as much. It makes it harder to get opportunities for the hunters. Gotcha. Um, with, the, with the buffalo... Are there any buffalo hunts coming up this fall? Um, and if so, when do they run to? And, um, you know, what's, what's your forecast? So the buffalo hunts are pretty much year-round. Um, there's actually a hunt ongoing right now. And um, that season was plagued by a lot of snow. But there's been a, a really good success rate on that hunt, despite the snow. 
there's another season that starts um, the first part in November, and it runs to the end of the calendar year. So hopefully we'll continue that good success um, in the November-December hunt that we've experienced in the most recent hunt. Well, for um, what for other of... species in Arizona, I definitely think is what we would call a drought year as far as antler growth. I don't think that was uniformly distributed everywhere. So what we're seeing on the Kayabab is pretty typical conditions as far as antler growth. But certainly on the strip, you didn't have the numbers of giant deer that you typically would have in a, in a normal year. As far as the Kayabab goes, I know those um, the east and west side early hunts are kicking off this weekend. Um, you talk about antler growth being about normal is what I hear you saying. Um, how do you think those hunts are going to go? Uh, what is the forecast for this upcoming weekend? And, um, you know, th there's a lot of hunters on that hunt, but how do you, how do you forecast that hunt going? I think it's going to be a really good hunt. Um, you know, the weather's part of it, but there's been a lot of fires on the Kayabab over the last year. So we're seeing deer in areas that we traditionally don't see deer. I do know, like, the migration from the Ponsagant this year seems to be early and heavy, which I think some of that does trickle down to part of uh, the Kayabab. But you definitely see good antler growth, good healthy deer herd. Um, there should be some nice clean weather, and I think there's going to be some really nice bucks taken on this upcoming hunt. You talk about the migration out of Utah, out of the Ponsagant. Uh, they must have had a few early snows to get those deer moving. Um, do you feel like those deer are, are making their way all the way into Arizona, into 12B, um, you know, and, and ahead of schedule, I hear you saying? I think so. Um, I don't think it's the full migration, and they haven't all moved all that way. But you can't have that number of deer move and it not shuffle the deck, so to speak, a little bit at least. And it's, I guess, a little bit unusual. You would think with that kind of migration going on in the Ponsagon that we would see the same thing going on in the Kayabab. And we still recently, even though we've had some pretty heavy snows on top of the Kayabab, there's a lot of deer that have haven't moved down to the bottom. Um, I think a lot of hunters are hoping that, you know, deer, every deer on the top is down in the bottom where it's easier to glass, but I, I don't think that's going to be the case. You talk about antler growth being more of a normal year. Um, how much of that, you talk about these fires, how much of that is to, you know, the browsing conditions and the availability of feed that those deer are able to find, you know, and, and in relation to, say, it being really dry, in other words, you mentioned those fires. Has it created extra feed and such that the browse is, is such that you know, their antlers were just fine? And maybe if they didn't have those fires, there would be a difference? So I think part of it is there's lots of good feed. But another part of it is I think the Kayabab was less impacted by the drought than other forests were. So you see that in the forest closures. You know, we had other forests closed for a month or two uh, early in the year, and the Kayabab never did close. There was fire restrictions, and it came really close to closure, and then we got rain. 
So the, just the conditions on the ground, both water and feed, were much better there than someplace like uh, 13A or 13B. Russ, how long have you been going up to the Kayabab, you know, both east and west side, uh, in a number of years? How, how long have you been going, like since you were a kid? How long has that been? You know, I'm middle-aged now, I think, is what you would call me, Jay. I'm almost as old as you, I think, right? <laughs> um, but certainly decades, you know, we've been up there a lot. And what's cool in uh, for what we do with the many different types of seasons we do is we get to be there year-round. So I think we get a different perspective when you watch the seasons change and you watch, you know, we're there. It's rare for us to go four or five days that I'm not on the Kaibab. So when you see it that much continuously, I think you're tuned in to more of like what's actually going on on the ground. And and you can look at it throughout the calendar year, but you can look at it over a couple decades, and it gives you a different perspective. Yeah, that that's a, a good insight there. That leads to my next question of, I've done some podcasters with some different guys talking about the Kaibab, and the general consensus seems to be that the Kaibab is definitely both east and west side is trending upward as far as uh, antler growth is seems to be getting a little bit better every year. You've seen it highs and lows. What would be your opinion on you know quality of bucks, both from a overall standpoint of you know all the middle ground bucks and then some of the high end bucks? What what's your what's your thought on which way is the Kaibab trending? And if your answer is different for east side, west side, break that down. It's definitely trending up. Um, I think that's pretty obvious. I don't think that's someone's opinion. I think that's fact. So there's more deer overall, and you'll see more deer in every age class. But there's definitely more big deer than we might have seen five or ten years ago. And, and I think that trend is going to continue at least for a while. The, the more we have fires, the more habitats created. But there's also some initiatives being driven by the government to try to do some forest restoration. I think the, the pendulum is swinging, so to speak. Um, a lot of forest policies are set by groups that might be different views than hunters that were preventing fires and thinning and things like that. And I think the pendulum is starting to swing where, you know, people that might have different views than hunters are actually supporting forest initiatives to improve habitat and improve forest health, and that benefits everyone. And I'm hopeful that that will continue. You talk about forest thinning. You talk about some different ideas and such. Then we have the buffalo on the Kaibab Plateau. Um, what is the current state of the buffalo? And that will also lead into what is going on with the National Park Service. And I've heard about some buffalo removal within the, within inside the park um, and, uh, you know, some alarming things that I've been hearing. I'd like you to kind of set the record straight from someone that's been up there for so long and so involved with the buffalo. Well, I think the, the short story on the buffalo is they're doing too good for their own, for their own good. What I mean by that is the herd continues to grow, and different factions may argue about what the appropriate number of bison on the plateau is, but currently uh, there's not a good way 
to meet management objectives, no matter what those management objectives are, because the buffalo spend so much of their time within the Grand Canyon National Park. In response to that, the park has done an environmental assessment and are moving forward with uh, removal of bison on the Grand Canyon National Park. Now, whether you agree that that's a good thing or a bad thing doesn't really matter because it's going to happen. There are many different tools in their toolbox is the vocabulary that gets used to describe this. And what that means from a politically correct standpoint, if you will, is if you were a, a park manager, you look at different ways that you can to remove bison from the plateau. And things that are in their toolbox would be some form of volunteers that would shoot bison. There could be uh, employees of a government agency that could shoot bison. There could be uh, live capture and translocation. And translocation could mean um, killing them or it could mean putting them in different locations. No matter which one of the different tools in front of them you look at, the end goal is to have fewer bison inside the Grand Canyon Park. Their stated goal is to reduce the herd to less than 200 over a three to eight year period. And they've begun that process. And when the process started, there's you know lots of rumors about, oh, there's going to be hunting in the park. It, it's not hunting from the standpoint of how you or I might think of hunting where the state game agency issues permits, hunters harvest an animal and take it home with them. They talk about it being a call, and they talk about volunteers going through a training class and shooting young bison, those bison being removed from the field, and the hunters not getting to take and keep their trophy. Um, a young bison wouldn't be considered a trophy for most hunters anyway. But the culling operation um, was maybe began, when I say began, they didn't actually start shooting animals, but they began developing the process of how do you go about that within the park. And that process um, kind of ground to a halt. And there's lots of rumors on why that took place. I don't think why it took place isn't as important as that it hasn't happened. So as a manager, you look at other tools in their toolbox. Another tool in their toolbox is building a catch pen, capturing them in a catch pen, and then trucking them away. So there was actually a catch pen built within the last two months, and that was built by a contractor. The pen has been completed. It was completed late enough in the season that most of the bison have migrated away from that area, and I've been told that they've suspended capture operations for this calendar year due to lack of bison availability. But the catch pen is in place, and I would anticipate that next calendar year that they would be using that as a tool to remove bison from within the Grand Canyon Park. If they remove them, where will they take them? So the first capture that was planned for um, this time right now, um, we were told that they would go to an Indian tribe um, near Oklahoma, and that doesn't sound like it's happening due to lack of bison availability, but that's that was the original capture. Obviously, if you're going to get the herd down to less than 200, it's going to be more than one capture. And I don't know of a public announcement of where the other bison were slated to go. If, I think they would, you know, do a capture and then they 
develop the next capture. How many buffalo do you estimate are, well, I'm sure it's probably hard to figure because you don't go on the park, but what is your guess for someone that monitors these buffalo for many, many years, 365 days a year, what is your guess as far as how many buffalo are roaming around in that area, both on the park and off the park? So the answer to that question is it depends on who you ask. And I know you're asking me, and I'm not going to not gonna answer your question, but I'm going to share some background maybe a little bit. You know, 10 or 15 years ago, they know exactly how many they had in the House Rock Valley. And that number is definitely over 200. Exactly over 200, how many over 200, it's hard to say exactly because uh, that information is not published, but probably around three or 400. If you had three or 400 10 years ago, you have much more than three or 400 now. So you're double or triple or more the quantity that's ideal in the park. Um, this past summer, I posted on my Facebook page videos of four to 500 bison in one group. So I can definitively prove there's at least that many. How many beyond that is a little harder to scientifically prove because they're dispersed in a very dense forest. But we were participating in an effort with the Game of Fish this year to try to get better numbers. And it's a very scientific approach, and it's a novel approach, which may be interesting to your listeners. They had us take meat samples from bison, which lets us get DNA from a wide group of bison. They sent that, those samples um, to southern Arizona. The university there uh, has some specialists that were working on a DNA model. And what that does is if they can figure out the diversity in the herd, they then can go in the field and collect um, scat samples, droppings from bison, and by capturing collecting those samples, they can get a very precise estimate of the size of the herd, which I think is pretty cool technology. It's a new application for DNA testing. Um, that model is being developed, but it's not finished. But it's something that we worked very hard on this past year. We collected about 50 samples from different bison that we harvested and provided it to the game agency um, for that program. So it's really interesting. So you have the National Park Service and the Arizona Game and Fish, and I would assume that it would, it would be nice to think that they're working hand-in-hand, hand, but I would probably assume from things that I've heard that they don't necessarily work hand-in-hand. Hand. Can you speak to that? So, you know, it's a public forum, and people have their different opinions and things like that. But I know for a long time um, they did work pretty well together, but... There's different objectives, I think, there. Uh, I think those relationships more recently are more strained, and that has to do with um, maybe each agency not being able to reach their objectives or their goals. So I know that the Game and Fish Department, the commission, has directed the department um, to not participate in certain aspects of some of the management that the Park Service is pursuing, and understandably so. You know, there's some legal wrangling that goes on with stuff like this. The Park Service probably wouldn't be allowed to do what they're doing if it wasn't the Park Service. So let's pretend that Jay Scott owned a big property in Arizona and you had a bunch of green grass on it. 
if cattle were coming on your property and eating your grass and you called the sheriff and go, hey, I want these cows off my property, it's my understanding that the way the state law works in Arizona is you have defense to exclude critters that you don't want on your dirt. And the Park Service apparently isn't required to follow that requirement in Arizona. So being the federal government and being a park, they're allowed to do things that maybe the general public wouldn't be allowed to do, like rounding up and uh, removing bison. You know, if a citizen tried to do that, you'd be committing a crime. But apparently the rules that apply to you and me don't necessarily get applied the same way to the national park. Good answer. Uh, from your perspective as an outfitter for bison, uh, I mean, are you basically, you give your input when you're asked, and then other than that, you're just going to, you know, abide by the game and fish rules and harvest when, you know, with the hunters that you have and, you know, go along until something changes? Is that kind of your approach? Yeah, yes. I think that is our approach. You know, we're trying to inject positive ways where we can. We're trying to do what we can to improve the harvest uh, for our clients, but for the general public as well. Some hunters appreciate that approach. Some hunters don't. Um, it's, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a little frustrating to us when we work this hard to try to help folks and they don't appreciate it or they don't want help. And if people don't want help, they want to do their own thing. We, we let them do that. But, most hunters learn pretty quickly that the reason the bison harvest has increased to the point that it has is because we're there so much and all the activities that we pursue. We're ready to work with Game and Fish or the Park Service to put our personal feelings aside for the betterment of the resource. And I'll be honest with you, Jay, sometimes that's really hard to, to work with someone you may not agree with, but you get past your personal biases and look at what's best for the resource, what else can you do? I mean, that's what you have to do, right? Yeah, for sure. Talking about impact on the land, and, you, and we're talking about the mule deer and the deer trending up and what have you, what have you seen personally where the buffalo either positively or negatively impact the habitat for the mule deer? So... The bison spend the majority of their time inside the Grand Canyon National Park. And unfortunately, the deer population inside the Grand Canyon National Park is actually very low. If you spend much time within the Grand Canyon National Park on the North Rim, the, the deer herd there is not doing very well at all. So it'd be easy to blame the bison for that, but they weren't doing very well in that area before the bison spent so much time there. Outside of the Grand Canyon National Park, deer herd's doing phenomenal. So once again, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, correlation does not necessarily mean causation. So what I mean by yeah. that is you can't say that the bison are preventing the deer herd. You can't say it, but it may not be true that the bison herd is preventing the deer herd from growing inside the park. It just might be a coincidence. Um, certainly bison need a lot of grass, but in my experience, the challenge for deer in the park is the distribution of their water sources. So the, the habitat isn't necessarily ideal for deer inside the park. The, the deer herd off of the, the park get best where you have large burn areas, and those large burn areas really help the deer herd 
and there's a natural migration from the top of the plateau down to the bottom, there isn't the same type of phenomena when you're inside the park. And the deer numbers are just lower, and they've never really took off. Bison are different than deer in that they seek areas without humans. Deer, less so. It's, you don't see deer getting hunted and leaving the forest and just all of them migrating into the park the same way that bison did. So I think the location and distribution of, of those different animals has to do with their ability to, um, to travel for water and the types of foods that they eat and the way they seek out uh, seclusion. Interesting. Russ, I want to take just a quick second here and thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com Gear Shop. My friend Cody Nelson of over 20 years is the optics manager there at GoHunt Gear Shop, and he handles everything from binoculars to spotting scopes to rifle scopes to tripods, anything to do with optics as well as any of the gear in the GoHunt Gear Shop. I want to encourage you guys to reach out to Cody if you have any optical needs, tripod needs, etc. You can reach him at 702-847-8747, extension 2. You can also check the show notes of this podcast for this number. You can also email him at optics at gohunt.com. I also want to thank kuyu.com. That's K-U-I-U.com. It's Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Uh, they make the hunting products or the clothing that I wear and a lot of the ultralight gear that I wear on my hunts. Check out kuyu.com. I also want to thank Canyon Coolers, based right there in your hometown, Russ, of Flagstaff, Arizona. Canyon Coolers has been a sponsor of the podcast now for a couple months, and I've been using their coolers this fall and really, really like them. Uh, go to canyoncoolers.com, use the J. Scott promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount. And then phonescope.com, if you use the J. Scott 18 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount. That is the digiscoping device. If you go on my Instagram at all, see any of the photos or the videos, uh, they're taken with the phonescope uh, digiscoping adapter. Russ, um, we've got mule deer season coming up we've got sheep season coming up we've got the late elk hunts coming up uh what are your thoughts uh where are you going to be do you have any specific hunts personal hunts guided hunts uh what's your schedule over the next uh, few months busy <laughs> uh, we're going to be doing some of all of that so one of the hunts that i'm really looking forward to uh is a sheep hunt it's in the White Mountains. It's a rocky sheep hunt. And it's um, with Bill Atchison. Anybody who knows Bill, Bill is a lifetime achiever, if I can use that word, uh, sheep hunter in Arizona. Bill is really the person that got me started uh, hunting sheep in Arizona. When I had my personal tag over in the Black Mountains, Bill's the one that really brought me up to speed as quickly as he did and was a huge part of my hunt. And I'm forever indebted to Bill for what he provided to me to help me with my hunt. And I'm getting to repay that to Bill here with his season. You know, Bill's not 15 anymore. He's a little bit older guy. But he has an amazing um, sheep hunt that we're really looking forward to. So Jacob and I are going to be going over there the next couple of days and spending some time before the season starts helping Bill look for a ram that's, uh, that's the right type of ram for his tag. 
there's a lot of other hunts that we're interested in as well with the deer and the elk and and there's still some buffalo hunts yet this year so we're going to be busy um but probably the one that sticks out the most to me immediately in front of me is this very special sheep hunt where i can uh, repay someone that's helped me so much that's awesome you talk about elk hunts um you you, you had mentioned earlier about uh you know a drought year antler growth is down um, what is the overall sense from your perspective, from your guides, uh, your friends, and, and, you know, your personal experience with, you know, hunting bulls uh, on the late hunt uh, that are, you know, antler droughted and what have you? How do you see those late hunts going down? Well, overall, personally, I think we're hunting out too much in Arizona. Um, when I was a youngster in Arizona, you had two or three seasons, and that was pretty much it. You know, a unit might see an archery elk hunt, and it might see a late rifle hunt. Um, there might be an early rifle hunt mixed in there, but they'd be rotated through different years. You know, the person, my, my backyard, 7 East, the, the elk herd in 7 East is just decimated, and that's intentional. They're reducing the elk numbers to protect aspen trees. But I think that same model is, is going on across the state where elk numbers are not what they were 25 years ago. So when I talk to other hunters, we certainly are successful in elk hunts. There's still elk to hunt, but it's much different than we remember from a few decades ago. Antler growth is down. Um, there's certainly a lot of broken bulls. You, you, I don't think that you saw the numbers of 400-plus-inch bulls in Arizona this year that we might see in a good year. So certainly... Um, there's definitely that impact to the antler growth. But we talk about antler growth. We talk about trophy quality. At the end of the day, that's exciting and fun to talk about, but not everyone's out there hunting elk just because of that. So I don't want it to overshadow the fact that, you know, we do have healthy elk in Arizona. There's lots of good hunting opportunities there. We're probably somewhat spoiled. You know, if you can't go shoot a 350 to 400-inch bull in Arizona, you feel like you got slighted. And... And I think there's a lot of places that would go crazy if they could hunt bulls like that, you know. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, um, I've been seeing some pretty amazing pictures of some elk that you've been taking, and uh, <laughs> we definitely didn't see that type of antler growth in my backyard this year. You know, one of the things that's interesting about that, Russ, is here at the Ot Sticks Ranch, um, I'm actually up on a hill getting phone service right now overlooking a lake right here, and uh, a lot of the old-timers around the farmers and some of the ranchers have said that, you know, this is an 80 to 90-year drought, worst drought in, you know, 80 to 90 years. Coming into the season, I was not very optimistic about antler growth, what we were probably going to be facing. But as it turns out, um, we actually saw pretty darn good antler growth. And one of the things, I'm curious your take on it, one of the things that I've been told and kind of run through my mind, you know, every which way was that these elk here in Colorado, if they have a very mild winter, uh, they are not stressed, you know, their bodies aren't stressed, and they are not, you know, fighting for food, pawing for food, and the cold, cold temperatures, in other words, don't have their bodies over or stressed, whereas um, on a drought year, you know, like we had last winter, very little snow, uh, they basically did not uh, suffer, if you will, or, you know, have to work hard for food. 
And I think that's why the antler growth was just fine, whereas I feel like in Arizona, if we have big snows and, and you know, good, good moisture, uh, that the condition on the elk body isn't near as bad because I just don't think the temperatures get near as cold. Curious your thoughts uh, for someone that obviously lives in northern Arizona um, on, you know, that, that perspective that I've got. Yeah, so Jay, I agree with you. You know, if you look at Arizona, not just elk, but all of our animals, we tend to have large animals in every category. And I think a big part of that is we have relatively mild winters. You know, if you look at the majority of our elk units, elk can migrate 20 miles maybe and be out of the snow completely or in low snow. So even in a heavy snow year, they can get away from it. And when the snow melts, they can come back. I don't know that that's true in other states, so I don't know that elk are able to get the age class and not have to invest the resources to combat those really harsh winter conditions. So, so I do think there is something to that. If you have a mild winter in these states where animals would be more stressed um, and they're not stressed, they probably maintain better body condition. Better body condition is going to be healthier and bigger horns. So, but to me, that makes sense. Um, in Arizona, we kind of got the double whammy. We had a really dry first part of the year followed with a really wet second part of the year. Um, so wet was good because it replenished our resources, but it was too late to do to help out antler growth. But I think if you look at animals like antelope, uh, there has actually been studies done that show antelope fawns that are born in a wet spring uh, are larger than antelope that are born in a dry spring with the same factors of genetics and the same factors of uh, habitat conditions. They're saying when sure. you want those top-end 95-plus-inch antelope, they have to be born in a wet year, they have to have the good genetics, and they need good habitat. And you know, it was a bad year for antler growth at the beginning of the year, but there was a silver lining in there, so to speak, in that we had a wet spring. So a lot of offspring born this year probably had a, a leg up on if that hadn't happened. You know, something I was thinking about when you were talking, um, I kind of drifted back to a, a something you had said earlier about when you were a kid, there was only a few hunts. Um, I want to ask your opinion and talk a little bit about it seems in a lot of these units that you know with all of the different hunts and opportunities for hunts that the units themselves uh the animals within the units it seems like they never really get a good rest you take seven east for example you know you've got archery deer you've got archery antelope you've got you know rifle antelope archery elk you know all the way through and if you look at a calendar in most units in Arizona there's very little time when there's not people just all over those animals cases one I don't know if it's a question or if it's just a statement you know I know years back that the public was kind of quote-unquote polled and do they want more opportunity or do they want more trophy uh, quality or you know a more emphasis on a quality experience I, I just wonder if that needs to be revisited again, because from my perspective, 
um, Arizona's quality overall has been declining, and I'm talking about over a 20-year period. It seems as though it's been declining in general. Um, how do you think that the state can juggle not only trying to, you know, provide resources to manage uh, what they're doing, but, you know, number, number two, make the public happy, but not end up putting too much pressure on the resource itself that ultimately someday, uh, you know, like you say in 70, the Yelkert has just been decimated? Well, it's, I don't want to sound doom and gloom, but the answer is they can't. And let me kind of explain that a little bit more. If you're the Arizona Game and Fish Department, it's easy for an armchair quarterback to come in and go, oh, you're doing this wrong. You should do A or B or C. And the, and the answer is they can't keep everybody happy. They're not going right. to get bunny huggers and trophy hunters and meat hunters to all agree on what should happen. But it's, it's more complicated than that. Even if you could balance the resource perfectly to accommodate as many of those possible needs as you can, our society is becoming less agrarian and more uh, city dwellers over time. And we find that as people do that, they're less and less connected with nature and they're more and more clueless as to what's happening in the forest. But they still vote. The number of sportsmen and women is declining over time. And the funding for the game agencies is coming from the sportsmen. So it's not just as simple as what does the resource want or what do people want. It's unfortunately a financial challenge. You have to look at how can we fund those agencies. And an agency that's not funded is going to go away. So they're caught in a rock a hard spot between balancing the needs of the resource but also meeting their financial requirements. And I think you see that if you look around the agency. Look at how they're grasping at new ways to generate revenue. Things like point guard here in Arizona is another way for them to generate revenue. And people don't want to hear that like, oh, it's not about the money. Uh, yeah, it is. Nothing is free, and you can't run a game agency without cash flow. And they're really limited on their cash flow. So what's the answer? You know, it's not just doom and gloom. Sportsmen are really good about complaining there aren't enough hunting opportunities, but are they willing to get out of their chair and get out in the woods and do something to create hunting opportunities? So this year in Arizona was a drought year, and there's definitely a ton of sportsmen that are contributing to the water hauling, either with cash or with their time or with both, and I applaud those sportsmen. But I bet if you did a survey of who actually contributed it's the same small group of people that are contributing, and there's a much larger group that could contribute more. But beyond contributing in the resource and habitat projects and things like that, it's incumbent upon all of us to make friends with our neighbors that may or may not hunt and try to get them involved in understanding these complicated issues and try to get them involved in what's going on. But I think it's going to get harder and harder for game agencies to meet those requirements because of political pressures at the ballot box, as well as financial pressures um, and hanging opportunities. So it's it's tough. It's tough to meet all those requirements. Russ, lately, do you have any specific gear, specific gadgets, um, anything that you think, you know, you feel like you need to share with other sportsmen out there that, you know, stuff that's really worked for you? Um, it's kind of a loaded well, question, but I, 
I have no idea there's, where you'll go with it, but you know, <laughs> is there anything out there that you're liking right now? Because I always lean on you for. Seems like you are always at the cutting edge of finding this, that, or the other, and so I'm, I'm curious your thoughts. Well, I absolutely love my BTX, my Swarovski BTX, and uh, I love it so much. I bought a second one. So we have the Koas, you know, the big eyes that we use for a lot of our hunts, but um, the BTX for us has been a game changer as far as being able to to glass in ways and in places that were more difficult in the past. So certainly a huge nod to Swarovski for that cutting-edge technology um, that the BTX is just unbelievable. And for your listeners that may not be familiar with that technology, it's essentially a spotting scope that lets you use two eyes like a pair of binoculars. So it works like a microscope. You're using both eyes into a single uh, objective lens. So it helps reduce eye fatigue but it lets you use, uh, you know, 30 power type um, glassing in a much lighter package than than other options that are available. And I know you've got your twin spotters, which is how people have approached it in the past. But I think things like the BTX are bringing that type of technology to more and more people. Let me, before you move on to something else, I, I do have, I have both the BTX, the twin spotters, and I've sold my Koas, but when you compare the BTX directly to the Koas, um, obviously weight jumps out as one of the first big differences. The, the BTX is way lighter than the, you know, 13 and a half or 14 pound Koas. Uh, another, what I would call similarity is that you've got the angled eyepiece. Uh, from a comfort standpoint, from the Koas to the BTX, even though it is at an angled eyepiece, uh, what is your comfort level, you know, with, with your eyes, eye fatigue, your neck, uh, et cetera? Um, you know, what are your thoughts between the BTX and the uh, COAS? So I've always used an angled eyepiece, and I know that not everyone gets comfortable or used to doing that, but for me it works fine. Um, in my day job, I'm an engineer, and ergonomics is a big part of some of the manufacturing stuff that we do. So I'm very familiar with, like, proper ergonomics. And if it's set up properly, I've never had a problem with my angled eyepiece. One of the other big hits, I think, for an angled eyepiece is people have a hard time pointing it. So, I don't know, just the way my brain works, that hasn't been a problem for me. I find it quite easy to find what I'm looking for in my angled eyepiece optics. So, Koa's spotting scope, BTX for me has always been angled eyepieces on everything, and I'm just familiar with the system, and it works fine. I do have some friends that have reported complaints with neck fatigue in, um, in their angled eyepieces, but I think you can have the same problem if you're not set up properly with a straight eyepiece. If you crane your neck down to try to look through a straight, a straight eyepiece, it can also be a problem. So that hasn't been a problem for me, and, and I'm comfortable with the system, and it works great. The main thing with the angled eyepiece BTX is I'm getting COA-like performance in a package way less than half the weight. So I'm able right. to carry more gear further in, and um, it's it's really good for us. So there's a lot of hunts where we're not able to use a great big optics. Bison hunts on the Kaibab is a good example. There's not very many places you glass for bison. But on sheep hunts, most deer hunts, and most elk hunts, 
um, antelope and other glassing type hunts in Arizona, coos deer, those type of hunts, being able to take a lightweight, high magnification package back dark and deep is, is really a powerful tool. For sure. Have you had any success um, digiscoping through either A, the COAs, or B, the BTX? Um, and what has been your experience? For me, the wide-angle lens on the COAs, it seemed like the, the, you know, the phone scope or the digiscope, whatever you're using, it, the, the clarity, it just never was like through a spotting scope. And I've kind of found the same thing with the BTX. It, you can get images, you can get video, but it doesn't seem to be as good as, say, through a spotting scope. What are your thoughts? Well, maybe a, a good way to think about it is if we talk about photography for a minute. Um, I think most photographers will tell you the more pieces of glass you go through, the more your image quality is going to degrade. So you start looking at something like a spotting scope, there's less pathways for your light to pass through there than when you split it through a binocular or through a BTX. So it's not surprising that the amount of light in the optical recipes are much different. For most people, I don't know that they're set up with really good equipment to take really good high-quality video and pictures because their digiscoping setups are somewhat lacking. But for me, digiscoping is a cool tool to document maybe what you see in the woods but if you want really good photographs of animals, there's, there's better ways to do that than trying to take a picture a mile away through a, through a BTX. You're, you're not going to be the same quality as an 800-millimeter telephoto lens at 100 yards. It's just never going to be the same thing. So I think if you understand what digiscoping is and what its role is, it's okay, but... Just because you have a big piece of glass doesn't mean you can slap an iPhone on there and get great video at extreme distances. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, fair enough for sure. What other um, technologies or what other, you know, products out there are really, you know, you're high on right now? So there's a couple different companies that are making um, the satellite texting technology. And... Uh, I believe you're sponsored by one, um, but there's other ones out there as well. And that satellite texting technology for us has been a game changer. Um, you know, I've got hunters in the woods. I've got clients in the woods. I've got friends and family in the woods. I've got uh, employees in the woods. And sometimes you got cell signal, and when you have that, communication is really good. But if you're in areas where there's no cell signal, communication gets harder. And safety becomes a factor, and coordination becomes a factor. The satellite texting technology has helped us improve safety and uh, reduce costs, and that's been really, really big for us. So I can't say enough good things about the satellite texting technology. Yeah, you know, um, you were uh, gracious enough to let me take one of your inreaches to the Northwest Territories and to Alaska. And, man, it, it worked flawlessly for me. Um, and then getting that EarthMate uh, app on my phone was awesome because I could still use my texting capability that I'm used to on my phone 
Uh, the app worked great, and you know the response time, everything about it was great. I can't wait to see, as well as I'm sure you are, to just see that technology evolve and get better, and you know get where we're you know almost texting as quickly and fast as uh, you can write when you have regular cell service, for sure. But from like you said, a coordination standpoint, um, you know being able to check in with home. Uh, you know, completely in the middle of nowhere in the Northwest Territories or in the Chugach of Alaska. It was it was awesome, um, for sure. I mean, do you think eventually the technology will come so far that, you know, be able to send, you know, emails quickly, be able to receive pictures, be able to go on the Internet? I mean, surely that's coming. You know, it's available now, but it's exorbitantly expensive for most people. What's nice about the inReach type technology is it's good technology that's affordable. Now, affordable is relative. Right. The unlimited plan is around $50 a month, something like that. And that's a lot of money, especially when you spread it out over a year, you know. But for someone that's in the woods all the time, like myself, it actually has saved me way more than it's cost me. Um, yeah. A couple examples would be, I can text one of my guys and find out, like, what do you need me to bring up when I come up? And he's not having to drive an hour somewhere, waste gas and time and lose time on a hunt to communicate, hey, we're out of bread or mayonnaise or we're low on diesel fuel or whatever he might need. Um, but also emergencies. You know, someone breaks their truck. Of course, it's not one of our Fords. It's usually one of the Chevys, Dodges, or Toyotas on the hunt. <laughs> For sure. Um, a little... A little uh, plug for my friend Ryan little, there, but little, um, little jab. W when we need parts, we're able to communicate quickly what it is we need. We can get that and we can shuttle it to where it needs to be. But safety um, and communication with, uh, with agencies. You know, we like to submit that we're always self-sufficient, but the fact of the matter is there's a lot of times we're interacting with the Park Service when we're on the Kaibab or the National Forest when we had fires this year or with Game and Fish or all three in coordinating the location and the travel of hunters and allowing areas to be open that they would otherwise have closed. And all of that was brought about by this technology of the texting by satellite. Um, but my work-life balance of being able to still run projects at home, um, keep my wife happy, be involved in what's going on with my kids in a way that's not possible without that technology. So for us, the inReach is... It's worth its weight in gold. It's it's been a really good thing. It's not as fast as texting with a regular phone, but uh, that's to be understood because you know your signal's not going to your local tower and then to your buddy. It's going to outer space and back again, and that's a much longer distance to travel. For sure, for sure. Uh, you know, Jay, there was there's one thing I yeah, there was one thing I did want to bring up. Um, you know, I don't want to bring up any um, tender emotions, but, you know, we lost an outstanding member of our community um, from QU with Jason's loss. And I did want to extend my condolences to his family. And, um, you know, I think our entire industry has lost uh, a huge, a huge member there. And it breaks my heart to have heard about that. I know you guys were close friends and I did want to offer my condolences. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's um, definitely came as a shock. It's definitely a tragedy. I think one of the shining, you know, out of out of 
crazy things that happen in life, a lot of times there's some bright spots that come up. And I think one of them that I've seen through this, if you try and find something positive out of it, is it seems like the industry in general, yeah, it's competitive and, you know, everybody's got their different companies and everybody's got their own objectives and goals and what have you. But when something happens that dramatic and that tragic, it is awesome to see the, the, the rally or, you know, the different groups, the different companies, people in general, people like yourself, uh, you know, realize that, you know, it brings, it brings a whole humanity to a big industry. And, you know, obviously Jason was a great friend of mine and, and um, you know, I've gotten so many messages from people that I don't even know. And the gist of it, Russ, is I never knew Jason. I talked to him one time at a show. He was so genuine. He was so nice. He was so real. And I think, you know, in looking at what happened, uh, you know, now that there's been about a month gone by, it's like, you know, it, it makes me think every day that I need to take more time uh, with people that I come across in my everyday life. I need to take more time with people that, you know, send me emails, send me messages, and realize that a simple hello and a simple answer to someone's question and, and a level of genuineness goes a long ways. And I think that's something that, you know, uh, Jason, with, with all, of, all of his bravado and all of, you know, the things that he, he, he did and that he stood for, he was super genuine. So I appreciate you saying that, and, and it's just been, it's been very rewarding to see the, the hunting community rally behind the family, the company, and it, it just seems like it's brought a, a sense, a little bit more sense of kindness um, with people's interaction. And if, if, any, if anybody's out there listening and, and maybe haven't thought of it that way, I would encourage you as well as, as I'm sure you would, Russ, to, you know, take time to say thank you um, to those people you love and t- take time to say thank you and congratulations to your competitors and you know, we're all in this together and we have to be, we have to treat, you know, it just seems like there's a sense of kindness that, that, you know, has been displayed since that. And maybe it's just my perspective, but um, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, That, while you were talking, it made me think of two things. One is it is a competitive industry and it does seem like there's some trash talking that happens out there. And, And maybe this is an opportunity to to move away from that to a healthier congratulatory sphere when when it, when someone else does well, I, I, I feel that way. Okay. Yeah. But the second thing is, um, I feel really strongly about our veterans. Um, we have a large population in this country that's hurting, and I saw some statistics recently that were quite frankly shocking and alarming to me. And I don't remember the exact numbers. That's not the important part. But the gist of it is this. It listed the total number of servicemen and women killed in conflicts around the world for like the last 20 years. And it compared that to the number of servicemen and women that commit suicide once they come home. And the number of suicides outweighed the numbers from battle. And to me, that Mm. was both shocking Mm. and unacceptable. And I don't Mm. think we see that. Like you hear like, 
so many minutes pass before uh, a vet veteran commits suicide. And it's a statistic, but it doesn't really hit home. Well, yeah. this really hit home for me because we donate so many hunts a year to the veterans. And I point people towards our Facebook page. There's some posts this year from some of the veterans we helped. And I'm going to shout out to Matt Amos, um, veteran. He's given so much for our country. He's given limbs for your and my freedoms. He comes on a buffalo hunt, brought a camera crew, was able to harvest his bison, and go watch his video and his story. If that doesn't get you fired up about giving back to our veterans in a positive way, nothing will. I would challenge all of your listeners to get involved with our veterans. Do something positive for somebody that makes it possible for you and me to be in the woods and to enjoy what we do. And not just lip service, but actually make a difference in their lives. Because there's a bunch of sportsmen and women out there that are really hurting, and it's not that hard to make a difference. Like you said, a smile, a handshake, a little helping hand. They are the most rewarding hunts that we do, is when you're able to help someone that's struggling or that doesn't have the same skills or opportunities that you or, my, you or I might have. A youth hunter, uh, a non-hunter, a beginning hunter, get out there and make a difference in a positive way and make a legacy for Jason and for all those that have given so much for all of us. Awesome stuff, man. That, that's awesome. Uh, I want to close with um, one thing I've noticed over the last five, six months. It seems as though uh, on your Facebook, you have taken to Facebook and almost made it kind of like a, a personal blog which is awesome. Um, I encourage uh, all the listeners, I'll try and link it up in the show notes, but to go to Russ Jacoby's Facebook page. Russ, what all of a sudden got you from someone that might post, you know, once or twice a year to very thorough, informational, you know, really good posts? What, you know, what caused you to do that? And what have you seen from um, being a little more active like that? Well, my personal time is important to me. And when you start doing 10 hunts a year, it has a certain impact to your personal life. When you do 20 hunts a year, it has a different impact. When you do 50, it's a much greater impact. When you start doing 100, 150 hunts, just the ability to disseminate information was overwhelming. So it was a way for me to get some of my personal time with my family back, which is important to me. Another part of it is the number of bison hunters has increased to the point that I can't reach all of them one-on-one. -on -one. So it was a way to hopefully share that information more broadly and help the resource. But there's also some changes going with the management. And, you know, there's lots of good things on Facebook. There's lots of bad things on Facebook. Just really trying to espouse the good part of it and blast out their information that's helpful. I know there's a certain segment of our society that's pounding their chest and like, hey, look at me. I'm very conscientious when you look at my photographs that, yeah, there's some trophy pictures on there, but there's a lot of this is how you do A, this is how you do B, here's a technology that's really cool, like the inReach technology. There's a whole, whole post about that. With uh, the changes in the management structure of Bison, there's posts about that. The fires that happened this year, trying to make sure that sportsmen and women that are participating in hunts on the Kaibab have the information that they need to react appropriately to that. So 
Facebook doesn't have to be politics and body slamming, you know, some that use different than you. It can be a positive thing where you can share information and help bring joy to other people, and, and that's really what I'm trying to do. Awesome. Well, you're doing a great job. Uh, I want to give you a chance to let the listeners know how they can find out more about you, how they can reach you and such. So why don't you do that now? Sure. I appreciate that. It's uh, Russ Jacoby, J-A-C-O-B-Y. And you can always call me on my cell phone at 928-814-9622. Jay will have a link to my Facebook um, as well as my email, which is coyote, C-O-Y-O-T-E, Rustler, R-U-S-T-L-E-R, at gmail.com. Um, we're fully permitted, licensed, and insured here in Arizona. Um, my personal part of Mossback, Arizona, is we're very well known for the bison hunts that we do on the Kayabab. We run guided and outfitted hunts, but we also do semi-guided hunts. And we do our hunter co-op, which we don't charge for, where we just try to help people to be successful on their hunts. Um, In addition to that, most people don't realize it, but we guide for the other species in Arizona. And we're certainly known for the the units that border the Grand Canyon, both on the north and the south side of the Grand Canyon. And always enjoy um, working with sportsmen to help meet their objectives, no matter what they are. It might be their first cow elk, or it might be, you know, that next large trophy animal that they're trying to push it to the next level. So, Jay, you asked about uh, game-changing technologies. And for me, I would be amiss if I didn't mention my Ford Raptor. I'm a Ford Raptor fan myself. I have one in Arizona that I have there. And here at the Ot 6 Ranch, I drive one. I drive a 14 um, here in Arizona and in Colorado. I know you have some newer models. Let's talk about it a little bit. Sure. So a calendar year ago, almost exactly, I purchased my first Raptor. It's a 2018, so it's the aluminum body Gen 2 Raptor with the twin turbo V6. What are the differences? Like the ones I have are the obviously the V8. What's the difference between the, the uh, V6 and the V8 as far as engine, power, etc.? The V6 is better. <laughs> Tell me uh, now. I get 16 miles a gallon in four-wheel drive with me driving it, which is saying something, Jay. 450 horsepower, 510 pound-feet of torque. Truck is lighter, faster, uh, more nimble, better suspension, and much better economy. So what's not to like about it? I know people talk about V6, V8, and and I'm not telling you that uh, the twin-turbo V6 um, is going to be a twin-turbo V8, but if you look at all-around performance, they hit it perfect on the combination of performance and economy. I, I absolutely am blown away at the level of performance and the economy that I get out of my Raptor. From a, With a lighter weight body, correct, because it's an aluminum body, um, how is the ride? Do you feel like the ride is better or worse than, than say, the, the vehicle that I have? I think it's better. So um, not having driven one a ton off-road, my comparison is more local driving. Um, the cool thing about being such good friends with my local dealer is, you know, I get special preferential treatment a little bit. 
when I've taken my Raptor in for an oil change, they've given me another Raptor as a loaner. So I've compared it on the same kinds of roads, at least in, you know, small segments. And it's definitely an upgrade. It's better performance um, with throttle response. It's way better performance when you're at the gas pump. But uh, even off-road, it's just more nimble. It handles better. And the suspension soaks the bumps up. I liked it so much, I went and bought a second one. So in February, we purchased a Raptor for Laura. And we use the two Raptors in our guiding business. And um, absolutely love them. Got almost 40,000 miles in a year on my first Raptor. And I liked it so much that um, I went ahead and ordered a 2019 Raptor, which will be here in December. And I'll roll over my Raptor on the new one. The new one's got upgraded suspension, even from the one that I have. And they're absolute game changer in the woods as far as safety and comfort off-road and on rough roads. It's just unbelievable compared to any vehicle I've ever been in. You tow a lot as well. How is the towing capacity compared to, I believe you were driving a 250 F-250 before. Um, how is your towing capacity with the, with the new Raptor? Well, I still have my diesel. So when I need to pull a 16,000-pound gooseneck trailer, that's not the application where you want the Raptor. But we have a 24-foot cargo trailer that we haul our razor and our equipment in, and it handles that just fine. So, you know, that 8,000-pound class-type toy hauler trailer is fine with a Raptor, um, but it's not a turbo diesel. You know, it's not an 8,000-pound truck, and it's not got 925 pound-feet of torque, but for most of what I do, it's amazing. Um, once again, on my Facebook page, if you go check it out, I put the largest buffalo we've killed in a long time in the bed of the raptor hole this year, and it's a pretty cool photo. <laughs> <laughs> so the hauling capacity and the towing capacity, it's not an F-350, but you'll be shocked at what you can accomplish with it. The majority of what the raptors are for is what I do the most on a hunt, and that's getting to and from our hunting location quickly and safely, running trail cameras and doing those types of activities, and absolutely blown away by the performance of the truck. You know, being a middle-aged guy with a back that's had two back surgeries, I find it beats me up less, and I am uh, can go longer and harder um, in that vehicle because it doesn't beat me up as much as, as other options out there. As far as other features on the dash or, you know, with the seats or what have you, have they changed much from your first Raptor to the new one that you're getting? So there's some changes. Um, the current Raptors, I always buy an 802A, and that's Ford speak for a technology package. So it has a lot of really cool gadgets that you don't realize you can't live without until you have them. So it has adaptive cruise control. It has um, collision avoidance and warning and a bunch of other things that we really don't have time to go into. But one of the really cool features is automatic sensing windshield wipers. So the first time the windshield wipers came on with that auto sensing thing, it scared the hell out of me. Hit a huge old puddle on a, a mountain lion hunt and water over the top of the truck and I can't see anything. Truck turns on the windshield wipers, cleans the windshield off, and then they stop. Not that I shorted something out. I'm like, what the hell? Um, <laughs> the auto-sensing wipers are a huge safety feature that faster than you can realize your windshield's obliterated, it cleans the window off and you're back at business. So 
the technology is fun and cool, but it's actually safer as well. You know, uh, on the twenty, on the, go ahead. The twenty nineteen, um, some changes available. There's Ricardo seats available now, which is an even a, an upgrade from the already amazing Raptor seats. Um, but the part that I'm really excited about is the new suspension. There's a electronic valving or electronic controlled valving in the suspension. So I know you would never jump your truck, Jay, but if you were to jump your truck, the truck would respond by sensing that it's airborne, and it changes the valving um, to compensate for the harsh landing that you might experience when you come back to planet Earth. You know how in the back seat of the Raptors, um, they basically have a fold-up bench seat. Is that the same in the 18 and in the 19? Yes. Um, the cool thing about, you know, later technology is we have heated rear seats. I'm not sure if you have that in yours. No, no, don't. So if you're one of the people relegated to the back seat and it's cold weather, you'll really enjoy the heated back seat. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a cool technology. We spend a lot of time in cold climates, and those types of comfort features obviously aren't necessary in a vehicle, but they certainly add to your comfort level. Um, especially in the really cold, cold, cold um, times that we're in, you know, deep snow and stuff like that. I've also heard that on the dash, um, that actually, believe it or not, like podcasts, and I'm not sure if it's through iTunes or how it's all set up, but I, someone was telling me that the new vehicles um, all come with the capability to be able to stream podcasts just like a, a radio channel. Is that, is that, have you heard of that? Yeah, so um, the sync systems allow you, depending on which version of sync you have, to have hands-free through your cell phone and all that technology. But the, the newer versions have Wi-Fi built into the truck. So you can actually have your truck be a hotspot. Um, that's a service you have to pay for, but it's an available technology. So we have a new Platinum Super Duty and the latest Raptors, and we're getting all that technology in them, so I'll be able to report back on how that's working. But we really enjoy the hands-free safety capabilities of being able to make phone calls while I'm driving in a safe way. You know, the bad connection, difficult-to-operate systems are a thing of the past. The voice-activated system works great. I can push a button, tell it who I want it to call. It makes the call, and... People don't know that they're on speakerphone. It's really good technology. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, I'll be anxious to see how you like that 19 um, and see the differences that you feel between the 18 and the 19. And glad you brought that up. Jay, thanks for having us on. And uh, I will be posting as soon as I get the, the 19. They gave me a VIN number, so it's real now. It's actually being made. And it should be here in early December if there's no uh, delivery problems. So an early Christmas present to, to myself for working so hard this year. Awesome, buddy. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing with us. Um, look forward to catching up with you uh, after the sheep hunts and such. And uh, we'll double back and do another podcast. And I appreciate your friendship and uh, appreciate everything that you do for the hunting community and I uh, hope you have some great buffalo hunts and hope you have a memorable hunt on that uh, sheep hunt. Jay, I appreciate it. Uh, congratulations on the success of the podcast. Always enjoy being a guest, and we'll look forward to being on again in the future.
All right, buddy. God bless. Take care. All right. Have a good day. Bye.